This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There isn't going to be an impeachment fairy, and Bob Mueller waving a magic wand isn't going to undo an election that people are upset about the result of. But each factual disclosure and each legal act that Mueller's team takes shapes the political environment and affects the sort of nexus between law and politics. Who else is an artist? Say that the person who does floral arranging owns a floral shop. Would that person also be speaking at the wedding? How about the so person who designs the invitation? The hairstylist? What, why is there no speech in, in uh, uh, creating a wonderful hairdo? When the makeup artist? What the court would ask... Quote an artist, the makeup artist. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. A little bit later in the show, we're going to bring you inside the chamber for oral arguments that took place this last week in Masterpiece Cake Shop. That's the Colorado case about bakers and civil rights that we previewed in the last show. But first, we wanted to turn to the unbelievable highs and lows of the Robert Mueller investigation. Uh, This entire week has been such a monstrous week, uh, starting a week from Friday with a plea deal with Michael Flynn and then sprawling into just a puddle of tweets and claims about executive authority. And then there was Alan Dershowitz and now a growing clamor by Republicans that maybe we just need to shut the whole probe down. So we wanted to talk all things Mueller with Andrew Wright. He served as associate counsel to President Barack Obama and was former staff director of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. He's also a founding editor of Just Security, which I am imploring you to bookmark. And he's an associate professor at Savannah Law School in Georgia. So first, Andy, welcome to Amicus. Thanks so much for having me, Dahlia. Um, Have I overstated the enormity of the mayhem that has gone on with this Mueller story this week? Well, no. I mean, just start – just the Flynn plea deal on its own would be enough for any president in their obituary, um, their Wikipedia page. I mean, the president's national security advisor – who was in office for two and a half Scaramucci's, 24 days, but even still under that short tenure, ran the national security process, was the principal national security advisor to the president and the White House, uh, coordinated all the agencies, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russians. And so I think that's just in and of itself, it's a bombshell. And there's been a cascade of other developments since that time about Flynn and others, and there's been testimony on the Hill. And so it's just been... um, Chaos. I think mayhem was the word used, and it's a great word for it. So I want to start with a very detailed and specific thing, and we can pan back from there. But you said you were quoted right in the wake of um, the the plea, quote, I'm pretty confident Flynn is singing like a bird to Mueller. Uh, I think that was how I read that. I, this was not by any means uh, being charged with everything. This was uh, Flynn pleading to something 
fairly tiny uh, one count of lying. Uh, I think Preet Bharara has come to the opposite view. Uh, he says it's not clear that he's cooperating or that there's a whole uh, raft of other uh, crimes on the menu. Can, can you help us understand a, whether you've changed your mind on that, and B, uh, maybe more urgently, uh, what it is that leads you to think that uh, Flynn's cooperating? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I, I listened to Preet's uh, podcast on this subject, and he lays out three different scenarios. The w- one, uh, which I think is mostly where I am, which is that there are things that Mueller has been promised from Flynn that were uh, sufficient for him to take charges off the table that Flynn could have been charged with. Um, then there's the second, which is this is kind of it. Flynn lied to the FBI. He may have had some other stuff to give with respect to himself, but he doesn't have anything on other witnesses like the president or other senior advisors to the president. And then the third theory that he proposed was this idea that there might be sort of a timed release where there are other charges potentially looming for Flynn in the background. But that because by their nature, they would implicate other people that Mueller's team isn't ready to show their hand about, they might come out later. And Preet gave some credence to that theory. The reason I think that at Preet's um, there's nothing there, there's no cooperation is not the best option is because uh, we saw that the FARA, uh, the uh, foreign agent disclosure requirements, was charged against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. And from all the public reporting we have, again, I haven't seen all the documents Mueller has, but from all the public reporting, Flynn had exactly the same kind of exposure, at least as to Farah, as Manafort did. He did, you know, late filings um, disclosing that he was actually acting as agent of a foreign government um, after he had failed to do so when he was actually doing the work. So the fact that that charge wasn't included suggests to me that there were uh, additional charges that were being bargained. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what's the leverage that Flynn has uh, to get charges taken off the table? And I doubt that it's just an administration of justice. Oh, it would be hard to take him to trial kind of interest. I think it has to do with the fact that he's probably giving some information. Now, what the quality of that information is, I don't know how significant uh, the information that Flynn might have as to the culpability of others. I think I think the best money is on the fact that that Flynn is cooperating and he's giving information that is incriminating to other people in the Trump orbit. I think that we assume that there is this thing and it's called collusion and there is a statute and there is this other thing and it's called obstruction and it's also a statute. Uh, it's obviously vastly more complicated than that. Would you do uh, – the work of just helping unpack for people who are not familiar with what comes under the broad brush of collusion investigations and what comes under the broad brush of obstruction? Yeah. So the collusion phase of the investigation relates to the campaign activities and potentially some of the transition activities of Trump and senior Trump advisors. And so that relates to contacts with the Russians. The word collusion has become shorthand for a bundle of potential legal problems that could be associated with contacts with Russia. Now, first of all, just as a political matter, you know, I think it would be fair to say that it's outrageous for a U.S. presidential campaign to purposefully collude with a foreign adversary in order to influence an American election, American elections for are for Americans to make their own decisions. But when you get into the legal specific, it gets a lot more complicated because, for example, there is no crime of collusion, but there are campaign finance laws that prohibit contributions by foreign entities 
back in the Clinton administration, there was a big investigation after the 1996 election about Chinese efforts to influence that election. And uh, one of those moments in that uh, chapter was Vice President Gore going to a Buddhist temple in the Los Angeles area and having gotten some donations from religious figures who had taken vows of poverty. And so we have laws that prohibit that kind of thing. And so one of the one of the kinds of sets of charges is that there could have been conspiracy or aiding and abetting illegal contributions of in-kind nature from Russians uh, into the campaign. And so they're kind of technical finance violations. Then there's this other set of crime, potential crimes that relate to acting as the agent of a foreign government. We have obligations to report um, when American citizens are acting as agents of a foreign principal under the uh, fair uh, FARA Act that I was discussing a moment ago about Flynn. I'm thinking Jeff Tubin did a, a piece last week trying to, to parse all this. And I think he came out thinking obstruction is where the money is, right? That's the, the easier one. And that is, uh, it's clear. It's not murky. We're not in the weeds on things like the Logan Act. Uh, obstruction is, is, this is the easy one. Do you agree? Well, you know, it depends on the facts. But yes, you know, we've been watching obstructive acts by the president um, in plain view basically since uh, he's been in office. And it's included, you know, berating his subordinate officials at the Department of Justice with tweets and in speeches and to anyone who will listen. And it's involved these alleged uh, communications he had with then FBI Director Comey. And so let me just give you the cleanest one. If... Michael Flynn lied to the FBI at the direction of Donald Trump. That's a very clear case of obstruction of justice. That would be a conspiracy to commit a felony. It would clearly meet any definition of high crimes and misdemeanors for purposes of the impeachment clauses. And it's and it is cleaner legally. Um, there are some murkier issues about obstruction of justice when it comes to the president. Um, you know, Dowd has made the I think outrageous claim, this is President Trump's lawyer, personal lawyer, John Dowd, that the president, by virtue of his office, can't be subject to an obstruction of justice statute. I think that's outrageous. That would lead us down a path to totalitarianism. And it's contradicted by the fact that both Nixon and Clinton were impeached in part on obstruction of justice theories. And, you know, every case from Marbury versus Madison to U.S. versus Nixon have suggested that the president is subject to law. Um, but there are some more complicated ones about can the president as the chief executive commit the act of obstruction by using uh, exercising executive power like removal of someone from a job? I think the better answer there is yes, he can. It entirely turns on corrupt intent and it was an act that served to potentially impede an investigation of Russian interference. But there are, you know, plausible arguments to the contrary about separation of powers. And so those are a little bit more substantial, but they're certainly not on the magnitude of, of Dowd's big fat claim that the president is basically immune from any liability here. And, and and I think I would also back up one step and say this all begins because right after the Flynn plea, we get Donald Trump uh, tweeting on Donald Trump's uh, own uh, Twitter account that uh, he knew he knew all along that Flynn lied to the FBI. And then because it looks like that really does look like obstruction, then we get 
John Dowd saying, oh, no, what I meant was that was me uh, tweeting as the president. So we've got this other uh, this show has a, a minor obsession with whether the tweets are official acts. Uh, but that was this extra strange thing where apparently there are ghostwriters for the tweets. And so they can't be ascribed to Trump. Um, so that's how we get into this strange world of John Dowd and Alan Dershowitz starting to make this unitary executive claim that you've just described that the president can't be obstructing if uh, he could have fired uh, these folks in the first instance. But I, I am curious uh, what you think of the notion that the president's Twitter feed is official, except for when it's not. Well, I think it's a window into communications that would definitely be attributable to him and um, you know, valid evidence of admissions by him ex- unless there's a factual basis and testimony to suggest they weren't him. So you know, as a factual matter for obstruction of justice, the question is a less about who wrote the tweet than what the truth is. And so if the president knew at the time that Sally Yates, then acting attorney general, told Don McGahn, White House counsel, that Flynn had uh, been compromised because he had lied to the vice president and others and that foreign governments may know that he had lied um, and therefore could use that as leverage to compromise national security. And he'd also, by the way, given an FBI interview. I think it was pretty clear to me at the time when that got reported publicly that it sounded like Flynn had lied to the FBI. So I would assume that Don McGahn walked away with that impression. That was on January 27th, and that same day was the day that uh, Trump allegedly told Jim Comey that he expected loyalty, and then two weeks later on Valentine's Day was asking if he could let Flynn go. If Trump had known during that period that Flynn had lied to the FBI, committed a crime, then that really bolsters the obstruction of justice case. So I'm more concerned about whether the tweet is true than who wrote it. Although I will just say, what a bizarre thing for a lawyer for the president of the United States to be doing, crafting tweets about an ongoing criminal case when, you know, my advice to any client would be to shut up. You know, when you're in a hole, the first thing you should do is put down the shovel. Right, right. And then that leads to a 24-hour Twitter cycle about the difference between pleaded and pled. This is where madness lies. Um, As uh, you and I are trying very hard to parse what's going on under this Flynn plea deal, uh, we have an escalating cry from Senate and congressional Republicans that maybe there really is something deeply biased and wrong about the whole uh, Mueller probe. Uh, You know, there's Trump tweeting uh, last weekend that the FBI's reputation is in tatters, uh, taking pot shots uh, again uh, at his own Justice Department. Um, And then really, I think, uh, increasingly solidified claim that uh, because there was somebody on the Mueller team who had to be fired at one point over uh, texts, uh, that the entire probe uh, is biased and needs to be derailed. Uh, Thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I think it's upsetting and disheartening that the focus by certain elements of the Republican conference in the House and Senate are just doing anything they can to throw sand in the gears, and they're looking for any opportunity to discredit this investigation. Now, first of all, Mueller has an obligation 
to protect the integrity of this investigation. That includes, you know, the perception and confidence that we can all have that they're engaging in the even-handed administration of justice. And if there's someone who is showing the poor judgment to display a bunch of anti-Trump bias who's on the investigative team, they should be promptly removed. Now, to my mind, this is really a story about responsible behavior based on what I've read, that Mueller uh, was made aware of a problematic texts and communications by this agent and remove them from the team to try and protect the integrity of the investigation. And then the DOJ inspector general has commenced an investigation into that conduct. So that seems to me to be the appropriate response. And the idea that that would discredit the entire investigation is ridiculous. So, I mean, you know, the fact that an FBI agent might have had a negative view of President Trump didn't make Don Jr. accept a meeting with Russians on the theory he was going to get dirt from Clinton and didn't make Mike Flynn call the Russian ambassador to try and undermine ongoing diplomatic efforts of the Obama administration and didn't require President Trump to remove Jim Comey under false pretenses. So I, none of that goes to the facts and I think that ought to be seen for what it is, which is just a political effort to protect the president. Thank you, Andy, for raising Don Jr., because it leads me to my next question, which is, um, what are we meant to make of of Don Jr.'s claim that attorney-client privilege somehow protects uh, his conversations uh, with Donald Trump that were subject to inquiry this past week? Yeah, so it's an interesting legal question, and it also is really important to the investigative work of the committee in Congress to find out the facts. So the specific – as I understand it, the specific objections that Don Jr. made uh, related to conversation, a phone call, uh, I believe, that involved the president and his son talking about how to respond to the media reports and disclosures about the June of 2016 meeting with Russian lawyer Veselnitskaya um, – that ended up apparently being either about dirt on Clinton or sanctions. We'll find that out someday. And he refused to answer questions about the substance of that call because there were lawyers for both men on the call, the father and the son. And so the first point I would just make is Congress does not uh, recognize attorney-client privilege as binding to it. Um, This is actually something that I've been quite critical of in a law review article called Congressional Due Process. Um, They have a history of basically saying that it's at the election of the committee as to whether or not they'll honor a claim of attorney-client privilege, even if it would be perfectly valid in a courtroom. The second question is, traditional attorney-client privilege, uh, it requires a communication between a client and an attorney in confidence for purposes of obtaining legal advice. So what was the purpose of this call? Was the purpose of this call to obtain legal advice from these lawyers or was it to circle the wagons and create a media narrative um, for what happened or to defend the president politically? So these sort of legal slash media strategy slash legal issues can be complicated when you're involving a president. But there are plenty of companies that have tried to shield information from disclosure because there was a lawyer in the room in a meeting and courts have rejected it by saying that was a business meeting, not a meeting for purposes of obtaining legal advice. So Don Jr. is going to have the burden of coming forward and putting that rationale forward. The second issue I would say is which who were the lawyers? So if it's John Dowd and Trump Jr.'s private lawyer, then that's more colorable uh, that it could have been an attorney-client communication. 
But if one of the White House lawyers or if the White House media people um, that are drawing taxpayer-drawn salaries were on the call, I would say that the attorney-client privilege would be waived. I think in that sense, we need to know who was on the call, the, the reason for the call, and whether Congress is even going to entertain the privilege at all before we can you know, give much credence to that. The other thing is there's a crime-fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. So you know, if I, and I certainly wouldn't wish this on any other attorney professional, but, you know, if an, if an attorney is facilitating further obstruction of justice somehow, then there's no attorney client privilege and the lawyer themselves could end up being in serious trouble. From the congressional side, though, this is one more example of so far, Congress has not pressed its interests and ripened its claims to try and pierce these various claims of privilege. Uh, being asserted by Russia witnesses. We've seen several instances now where witnesses before the House and Senate have, without formally asserting executive privilege, declined to relate communications they've had with the president on an executive privilege type theory. And while there's been some haranguing, mostly from Democrats, about not answering the questions, the committees under Republican leadership have not called for answers to those questions under subpoena, and then they don't have the ability to hold the person in contempt for their refusal to answer. So Congress hasn't ripened its claims. The same thing would apply to to Donald Trump Jr. If Congress wants to get this information, they have to rule against his objection, demand that he give the information, subpoena him if he refuses to give it, and then hold him in contempt if he still refuses and undertake their uh, methods of compulsion from there. So, Andy, you used the word disheartening a few moments ago to describe efforts to discredit the Mueller investigation. Um, I, I wrote a, a piece that was probably beyond disheartening and probably existential and nihilist last week where I said that I thought Democrats were putting way too much hope uh, in the Mueller investigation and absent uh, support from Congress, absent meaningful consequences, this could end up in an indictment or in you know recommendations to impeach and matter not at all. Uh, and that Democrats tend to have very magical thinking about courts and the rule of law. And sometimes that sets us back rather than helps us. Tell, tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, your piece sent me into a minor depression. Oh, good. That's, <laughs> when I read it. That's but... the wrong answer. Uh, tell me, tell, we're going to edit that, and you're going to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no. The look the the answer is the the laws of political gravity have not been eradicated just because Donald Trump is in office and because the Republicans are not behaving honorably in some instances. It's been blunted politically by. You know, media echo chambers and a lot of sophistry and talking points and gerrymandering and other things that are diluting voting effects. But I still think that there are some basic political principles. The other thing that hasn't been eviscerated by Donald Trump's assuming office is the fact that facts are actually real things and the law is a real thing. And so, you know, now more than ever, we need the tools of the trade of lawyers, facts and law, both of which are under attack by this administration to varying degrees, but they still exist. And so, you know, on the one hand, I think there are there isn't going to be an impeachment fairy and Bob Mueller waving a magic wand isn't going to, you know, undo an election that people are upset about the result of. 
But by the same token, each factual disclosure and each legal act that Mueller's team takes shapes the political environment in which the Republicans have to answer questions and face their constituents and and affects the sort of nexus between law and politics. So I, I'm still confident that uh, the laws of politics, the physics of politics are still um, in existence and they're being affected by what's happening now. It's not – we're not just uh, in total totalitarian la-la land yet. Andy, I, I, one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show this week was I, I think you've spoken – I've heard you speak so eloquently about – it's not just the courts. And now you've, I think, made that point about it's not just Mueller. What else is out there in the ether that folks maybe are not seeing uh, that uh, is still adhering to the kinds of norms that make us not be in la-la land? In other words, I think the laser focus on Mueller, the laser focus on litigation uh, blinds us to a lot of other entities that are still uh, a net here, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we've got courts that are still taking cases and controversies and doing their best with the briefs that they get. But more than that, we've got a more active and engaged citizenry than I've seen, I think, during my lifetime. And that's just critical. I mean, when things are sort of humming along and, and political fights can be sort of, for a lot of people, outsourced to others, um, everyone got to free ride a fair amount. But now we have to be active citizens. And I think at the end of the day, you know, the only thing that can fully save us uh, isn't going to be a bunch of really good prosecutors and investigators. It's going to be the American people who are going to make it clear to their members of Congress that they expect our system to work and they expect there to be some basic standards of decency and adherence to the rule of law that are going to continue to do that. And I'm seeing a lot of signs uh, of that. I think there are a lot of people just in my neighborhood in Savannah, Georgia, the deep south. I have to drive north to get to South Carolina. And, you know, people are out on various issues that they might never have been. You know, in the stroller mafia, there's a whole network of people who are addressing gun violence now in Savannah, Georgia, deep red state. And I th and you're starting to see some of those networks get fairly activated about Russia. And there's been a ton of outpouring about health care. I also think that there are this sort of accountability community beyond the traditional criminal uh, forces like the inspectors general, like the government accountability office, uh, like the, the uh, Congressional Research Service when they can tell you what people have and haven't done in the past when Donald Trump is trying to break the mold with everything. We have some good measuring sticks that continue to help us uh, remember what normal looks like. And I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to handle this shock to the system. Last question, Andy, while I have you. This is at least ostensibly still a show about the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, we've been following uh, the jugs and the turns of the travel ban litigation uh, this past week. Uh, oral arguments at the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, about 3.0 uh, edition of the travel ban. And and this week, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, surprised a lot of us uh, by allowing, uh, at least provisionally, version 3.0 to go forward. Do, do you think that the courts have chaos fatigue? Or are, are they starting to just say, oh, this third version, you know, they tweaked it enough. I'm exhausted. Let's just... You know, we're just going to wait till 4.0 and that'll be OK. So let's just stop 
being outraged all the time or am I am I uh, overreading what what has happened in the courts to the travel ban? I'm not sure if it's chaos fatigue as much as it is that the Supreme Court undoing the nationwide injunctions um, kind of sent a signal that they might be a little bit more solicitous of uh of the president's position on the merits for 3.0. And I think my sense from reading about the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit three-judge panel, um, all of whom happened to be Clinton appointees, sounded like um, the government got a little less rough treatment than they've gotten previously. And I haven't heard yet about uh, the on-bank um, oral argument in the Fourth Circuit. But I think there's a little bit of a, of a sense from these appellate courts that the Supreme Court might not be going their way. And so I will, it'll be very interesting to see what their rulings are coming out of these arguments, um, given the fact that that uh, the Supreme Court has, has given, you know, fairly mixed signals, but has certainly not upheld these uh, dramatic remedies of the injunctions previously. Andy Wright served as associate counsel to President Obama. He was former staff director of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee and is a founding editor at Just Security. Andy, thank you so very much for giving us your time on Amicus this week. Thanks so much for having me on. I want to pause for just one second and tell you about another fantastic Slate podcast that you might want to check out. El Gabfest en Español is Slate's first ever Spanish-language podcast led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause. The hosts will discuss the news of the week in a no-holds-barred lucha libre. The emphasis of the show will be on U.S. politics and current events, but the team will also discuss international news as well as sports and culture. And they have had huge guests on this show, journalists from Jorge Ramos, Maria Elena Salinas, an ex-ambassador ambassador to the U.S. from Mexico. But, oh my God, the December 7th episode includes Senator Tim Kaine and his Spanish is much better than mine. There will even be an English language segment for Slate Plus listeners, essentially the first topic reconsidered in English. Here are some of the topics that they'll be addressing. Donald Trump, The Wall, DACA, Venezuela, pop culture, and of course, football, as seen from the Latino perspective. So check it out. El Gabfest in Español, Slate's first Spanish language podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This past week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a critically important and unbelievably dramatic case uh, challenging a Colorado public accommodations law that prevented a religious cake baker from discriminating against a same-sex couple who wanted a custom-made wedding cake. Now, as we discussed in our last episode, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission involves Masterpiece Cake Shop's owner, Jack Phillips, and his contention that he should have an exemption from the public accommodations law because of his faith-based opposition to same-sex marriage. And 
And this was rooted in his claims about his artistic expression in the form of the cakes he creates and uh, religious protection of his right uh, to dissent. So this week we wanted to talk to Robbie Kaplan. Robbie Kaplan is the founding partner of Kaplan & Co. LLP in New York City. She successfully argued Edie Windsor's case against the Defense of Marriage Act in 2013, which not only invalidated the main part of the Defense of Marriage Act, but it actually eventually led to the recognition of same-sex marriages around the country. Robbie filed an amicus brief in this case on behalf of leading religious scholars and constitutional lawyers. And so, Robbie, welcome back to Amicus. It's a pleasure to be here. Robbie, when we teed Masterpiece up last show, we talked an awful lot with Adam Liptak of The New York Times about the extent to which this is a speech case. It's styled as a speech case. It's largely uh, argued as a speech case. Uh, And yet it's complicated, right? This turns out, having listened to oral argument, uh, either to be a speech case with a side of religion or a religious liberty case with a side of speech. Speech. Talk a little bit about how that played at oral arguments this week. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a you raise exactly the issue that I think the justices themselves are grappling with. Um, on the one hand, I think everyone kind of at first blush thinks of this as a religious liberty case because it's about a Christian baker who doesn't approve of of same sex marriage. On the other hand, in terms of the briefing, both by the government, the Solicitor General's brief, and frankly by the ACLU protecting. Uh, the gay couple, most of what they focused on were, and, and most of the argument actually focused on the free exercise, the free expression, and the First Amendment clause with respect to speech. And yet, uh, there was this valence around the case, and you wrote about this. This was your brief that was, look, this is also very essentially a, a religious liberty case, and we have to think of it that way. I, I wonder if there's a way in which this case kind of falls into this strange space between, uh, you know, the ways we talk about purely speech, the way we talk about purely religion. This seems to be. Uh, both. And I think in a strange way, because the justices couldn't figure out how to analyze it, uh, it wasn't clear, at least to me, from argument that they knew which box to put it in. No, and I think that's right. I think when you listen to the question and answers during the argument, you know, they might be asking questions as a a free expression or a a free speech in a free speech context. But really, they're also talking about the religious liberty context as well. So start by explaining what the speech argument is. This is, in effect, a compelled speech problem where we have a cake baker who says, I am a cake artist. We talked about it on the show last time. He says, forcing me to use my artistry uh, in order to uh, solemnize something that I think is sinful is compelled speech. That's it's that simple, right? No, it's not that simple. I mean, I, that is the argument. The argument is that there's some kind of artistic uh, free speech expression, pure expression that goes with making a custom cake. Um, uh, and because the Supreme Court, I think this is part of the strategy here, because the Supreme Court has been ex- really expanding in certain ways or been very strong about free speech rights in the last several years, I think the people on his side of the case, many of them thought the best way to argue it was as a free speech case under this notion of compelled speech. Uh, but when you think about that for more than a few seconds, I think that argument, and you heard this in the argument, kind of falls apart. Uh, Because under that concept of, quote unquote, compelled speech, uh, much of what people do in the commercial context would be compelled speech. Um, I think Walter Dellinger's brief expressed it best when he said when you when you buy a ice cream cake for your kid, 
from Carvel. Your kid does not assume that Carvel is wishing him a happy birthday. Um, you heard it in the argument with Justice Kagan asking about makeup artists and hairdressers. So I, I think that argument, that line in that argument is very, very hard to make, very hard to draw a clear line. Um, because if that's true, if what anyone does in a commercial context is speech, then the civil rights laws really don't have much strength or meaning um, in terms of what people may want to say or not say in, in those contexts. So, so let's listen to a little bit of what you've just described. Um, here's Ruth Bader Ginsburg trying to understand the difference between a hairstylist, a makeup artist, a photographer, uh, and the cake baker at issue. Let's have a listen. Who else is an artist? Say the, the person who does floral arranging, owns a floral shop. Would that person also be speaking at the wedding? If, the, if they are custom design arrangements and they're being forced to create artistic expression, which this court determines is a message. How about the so person could, who designs the invitation? Yes. The invitation to the wedding or the menu for the wedding dinner? Certainly, words and symbols would be protected speech, and the question would be whether the objection is to the message provided or if it's to the person. And then we get to a very strange moment, Robbie, where we're told, and and this is now Elena Kagan saying, so wait, the baker is engaged in speech, but the chef is not engaged. Like, they're really, uh, I I don't want to say slicing the salami because we're talking about a cake baker and a chef, and it's confusing, but they are trying to part. They're slicing the bouche de Noel. (laughs) Exactly. So, so really, it takes us down to this road of how are you going to draw a line, right? Exactly. I, I, you know, in a certain way, if you if you read or listen again to the arguments, it's not you know you wouldn't think that these are you know the highest justices in the country talking about complicated legal theories. They're not at this argument. It's quite interesting. They're talking about things like what's the difference between a cake and a chef and a makeup artist and a hairdresser. And then we get into this extra weird moment where Kristen Wagner, who's de- uh, defending uh, Phillips in this case, starts to say that architecture is not expressive activity. Uh, and here's uh, Sam Alito trying to throw her a line and say, like, I don't think you want to be saying uh, that cake bakers are speaking and architects are not, right? What would you say about an architectural design? Is that entitled to, not entitled to First Amendment protection because one might say that the primary purpose of the design of a building is to create a place where people can live or work? Precisely. In the context of an architect, generally that would not be protected because buildings are functionable, not communicative. You mean an architectural design is not protected? No. Architect, generally speaking, architecture would not be protected. So so how does the court resolve this? We clearly spent a whole chunk of this argument slicing and dicing between makeup artists, photographers, and architects. And then uh, we get to Stephen Breyer, who makes, I think, the point that you just made, which is, ah, there's no principled basis on which to eviscerate uh, civil rights protection based on this. So what he's doing, it seems to me, is saying, there's this larger issue here, which isn't just about bakers and photographers. It's that you're gutting uh, 20 states have exactly these kinds of laws, right? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, even for the conservative justices on this, I think there's concern on their part. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my grandmother telling a story about her honeymoon, actually, that she took driving in the South with my grandfather in the 30s. And um, I can remember this like her telling me the story like it was yesterday because it had such a huge impact on me as a kid. She said from time to time on this trip, they would drive into a small town, you know, at dusk 
and they would try to check into the only hotel, and the only hotel would have a sign that said, no Jews allowed. I don't think anyone really, I mean, the people I've sued in Charlottesville may think that, but I think most people in this country do not want to go back to that regime for anyone, be it Jews, Muslims, African-Americans, although there was a lot of discussion about whether African-Americans are different, or certainly even gay people. So I actually don't – my guess is when the court decides this case, they're not going to make those kinds of distinctions. We'll talk a little bit about that, Robbie, because it does seem to me as though the answer to why is this different uh, – here we've got a baker who objects to same-sex marriage. How is this different from Loving versus Virginia? How is this different from somebody who's just uh, religiously and in good faith claiming that they have a problem with race? What's the, what's the answer that we get in response to drawing a line between those cases? There is no principle – answer or way to draw a line between those cases. And, and, and I think, again, I think the justices are concerned about them, including Justice Kennedy, who's likely to be the deciding vote here. Um, he talks about the dignity of gay people. There's a lot of discussion and the argument about is there any way to change to separate African-Americans on the one hand from women on the other hand or than gay people on the other hand. And, and you start thinking about that, it seems kind of crazy. You could, you could, most of the justices all seem to agree that you could not have any kind of religious exemption for African-Americans. But the idea that then it would be okay to do that for women or okay to do that for gay people sounds crazy. You know, you're a woman. I believe that women should religiously work in the home and stay as stay-at-home parents. Therefore, I'm not letting you into my nightclub. That's a perfectly, you know, reasonable religious view of some people, I guess. But it can't be that that would give them an excuse not to follow public accommodations laws. So now I want you to turn to the religion piece of it, because this is what your amicus brief wrestled with. And this, I think, becomes a little bit of the subtext is, look, you know, is Smith versus employment? I'm sorry, employment is employment division versus Smith still the law, right? Is there still this basic principle that religious objectors, even strongly felt religious objectors, have to comply with a valid and neutral law of general application? That's supposed to be the scope of the playing field, right? And so your brief is in response to, I think there's a brief that's filed by Doug Laycock and other religious scholars at University of Virginia. Tell us what they say and what is your response to that? Yeah, their argument, and, and this is actually where I think the court is likely to end up in terms of its opinion. Their argument is that essentially that there has to be an opening under Smith uh, to allow for the sincerely held religious beliefs of people um, to be able to do or not do certain things in accordance with their with First Amendment rights. And um, there are different variations of that view. Um, some would say that that is so strong that it absolutely overrides all, you know, nearly all civil rights and public accommodation laws. Um, others take a narrower view and say in certain circumstances, that seems to be uh, where Justice Kennedy was going at this argument, that in certain circumstances, maybe in particular unique sets of facts, um, you can have small exceptions to the Smith rule uh, that say that a, per, a, a particular person's religious beliefs override certain kinds of, of generally applicable laws. But it, but even there, it's tricky because where you draw that line is, is not – I think it's maybe easier or more defensible to draw a line there than it is under free expression, but it's, a, it's also tricky. So what's your answer then? What's your answer in your brief to 
uh, well, you know, we have to have a carve out for people who who bitterly, bitterly feel as though their religious liberty is being burdened by these same sex weddings. What What's the response? My answer is that you can't have that carve out, that, that that kind of a carve out leads to the problems that we thought we solved in this country when we got rid of Jim Crow. Then we when we got rid of signs like no Jews allowed at hotels and that uh, allowing for even any opening, any kind of small opening, will ultimately lead to the evisceration of those laws. And that while people are certainly entitled uh, to their religious beliefs and certainly entitled to express those beliefs uh, in religious institutions, at church, at home, any way they see fit, uh, when it comes to a business that's open for public accommodation and it serves everyone, it has to serve everyone uh, irrespective of the religious belief of the owner or workers. Robbie, you'd been pretty critical when uh, the Solicitor General's office got into this case on the side of Jack Phillips, the cake baker. Um, it was obviously a reversal of what we had seen uh, from the Obama administration, Solicitor General's uh, posture on these cases. But one of the interesting things that a lot of court watchers noted was that the position that was staked out was almost more extreme than we'd even seen in the briefing. Uh, Noel Francisco saying uh, that bakers could actually put a sign out in their window uh, and Justice Kennedy's response to that. Uh, Your Honor, I think that he could say he could, does not make custom-made wedding cakes for gay weddings, but most cakes would, would not, not cross the threshold. you would not consider that an, an, an affront uh, to the gay community. Was that – how did that go over uh, in, in – not just in Justice Kennedy's world, but in your world, the notion that not only can we have this carve-out you've just described, but now you can actually put a sign in your window and say, you know what, I'm just not making cakes for same-sex couples. Yeah, you you go back to my grandmother's story, right? And and, and I think in a lot of ways, um, that that colloquy between Noel Francisco and Justice Kenny kind of hits at the core of the problem here, because on the one and why I think we're right in our amicus brief, and why I hope the court will eventually agree with us, because on the one hand, even if people have this religious liberty view, you have to think about the dignity of the gay couple coming in, and you really only have two choices there. You could either have a sign available for the public as proposed by the Solicitor General that says we don't sell cakes, wedding cakes to gays. Or you face the risk that the gay couple come into the store with their family and their kids all excited to pick out a wedding cake for their wedding. And then they're all humiliated at the store when they're told we don't serve gays here. Neither of those prospects is particularly appealing, I think, to most people of good conscience. Uh, certainly, Justice Kennedy made that clear. So I think that conundrum, that that fundamental problem with respecting the dignity of gay people, is what the court has to gra- court has to grapple with here. And that's why I think you can't leave opening, even narrow openings, for these kinds of exceptions. Uh, I always feel like I've always said that if Amicus had a, a sub theme, it would be what would Kennedy do? Uh, that's all we talk about week after week uh, for years. Uh, and if Kennedy has one central lodestar, it's dignity. I mean, he writes about it all the time. As you know, it's at the heart of Obergefell. It's at the heart of, of so much of his thinking. And as you've just noted, uh, to the extent that this case kind of in Kennedy's head becomes 
almost a dignity off uh, between the affront to dignity of uh, uh, religious objectors on the one hand. uh, And as you've just said, he he was at pains to say a sign in the window would clearly be an affront to the dignity of gay couples. Uh, How what's the metric, Robbie? I mean, how I know you've watched Kennedy so carefully in your own advocacy. Uh, How does he work his way through this? Uh, You know, it's a it's a very tough I think you're right. I think that's exactly what he's facing. Uh, it's a very tough problem for him, to be quite frank. Um, I'm not. I'm sure that if he resolves it in favor of the dignity of the baker, of the religious person here, he's going to try to do it as narrowly as possible. But I think he has to be worried about all the problems that we've talked about, including signs that say no gays allowed, including humiliation to people when they come into a store. Um, so I, I like to think, I hope we're, we're persuasive, persuasive enough in our amicus brief and elsewhere to persuade him that he should come down on the dignity of the gay couple. Um, because, again, you know, no one forces a baker to open for business and, and sell cakes to people. But he, if he's going to sell wedding cakes to a straight couple, he should sell a wedding cake to a gay couple. And again, in this case, in terms of the free expression issue, there was nothing – about what he had to write on the cake, as I understand it, was just a cake with some kind of rainbow decoration on it. And yet, I think that he got into it here, let's listen, with David Cole, where Kennedy not only said this is not about their identity, uh, he said it's what they're doing. Uh, Let's have a listen. Suppose he says, look, I have nothing against against gay, gay people. He said, well, I just don't think they should have a marriage because that's contrary to my beliefs. It's not yeah. It's not their identity. It's what they're doing. Yeah. I, I think it's well, your it, identity thing is just too facile. So that's Justice Kennedy saying that this identity thing is too facile. Um, that suggests that he is going to draw the line somehow between identity and conduct, or at least I think that folks who are watching and worried felt like he saw a distinction there. Is that a principal distinction? I hope not. It, it certainly seems to me to be very inconsistent with what he said in Lawrence, where that argument was made uh, explicitly. And he said explicitly in his majority opinion that you can, with respect to gay people, you cannot distinguish between the conduct uh, uh, of, of gay people and their identity, that loving someone of the same sex is inextricably part of being gay, and that's your identity. It's not just a question of supposedly immoral conduct. So, you know, again, I think things that happen in oral argument, I think people can put too much faith in because there's a little bit of give and take and kind of intellectual sparring that goes on there. That is, you know, then people sit down and have to write something down is a very different intellectual exercise. It's very, very hard for me to believe that Justice Kennedy is going to draw a line uh, between the conduct of a gay couple going in and wanting to buy a cake and their identity uh, as gay people getting married and wanting to have a cake at their wedding. I, it's, that's hard, very hard for me to think that he will make that distinction. Robbie, you said that there's a way for the court to decide this narrowly. Um, I think the consensus was after arguments, it looks like at the very least, and you're quite right to say, and again, this should be the sub subtext of this show. Uh, you can only read so much into oral arguments, right? We all came out of Obergefell thinking uh, and out of the Affordable Care Act cases thinking that it was a done deal. So with that massive caveat, uh, it did seem as though, again, Justice Kennedy, that his ire, uh, to the extent that he directed his ire somewhere, uh, was at the commission. 
uh, was uh, that there was something about the decision-making process and the the, the, the words that were spoken uh, in the commission in Colorado that was really uh, an affront. I think the sentence that everybody uh, ran with in their, in their write-ups of this uh, case was when he talked about uh, tolerance. Let's listen to him saying here that he felt that Colorado had evinced no tolerance. Tolerance um, is essential in a free society. And tolerance is most meaningful when it's mutual. Uh, it seems to me that the state in its position here has been neither tolerant nor respectful of Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs. And, Your Honor, I... I and it, it, because accommodation is quite possible, we assume there were other shops, that, other good bakery shops that were available. So talk for a minute, Robbie, about how we could narrowly decide this case without the sweeping implications you've just warned us. So, so there are civil rights laws in place that have kind of small outs uh, for people who have strongly held religious beliefs. And the Colorado law has some exceptions, but it doesn't have that exception very clearly. And I think what Justice Kennedy is saying is that in a particular case, when a particular commission is deciding what to do under the circumstances they have to take into account to some degree the sincerity of the religious beliefs of the person making the objection. And they have to kind of try to strike a fair balance on the facts before them. And while that is certainly subject to all kinds of crazy results on either side, I, and I understand the objections to that, my guess is, is that's where if, it, if, it, if he rules in favor of the baker, where it will end up. He will send it back or ask uh, the commission to reconsider if there's something something more narrow that could be done here in the context of this baker, who I assume people knew, you know, had these very strong religious beliefs. And can we just accommodate this guy in this one respect? And I think that raises probably the penultimate question I have for you. Um, at, when we uh, teed this case up a couple of weeks ago, I had a long conversation with Adam Liptak. He had gone down. He'd interviewed all the parties. Uh, he came away with a deep feeling that everybody was in good faith on both sides and that this was not uh, pretextual, that we have to take uh, folks at face value. I, I got an upset email uh, from a listener who said, how can you say that somebody whose religious objection to gay marriage is ever in good faith? Could you say that they're in good faith if they're racist? And I, I think it's a point that I, I want to at least tease out with you because it's a, it, this is such a hard case if you assume that this is not a person who's just a hater. Uh, this is somebody who uh, one wants to say just simply believes what he believes. How do we get through this uh, when we assume that there is good faith on both sides, as I think you're suggesting that we assume for purpose of this case? Yeah, I think, A, I think we have to assume that for purpose of this case. And B, even though I'm a person who has very, very different religious beliefs, I still, I mean, I may get attacked. I may get nasty emails too. But I, I myself accept the fact that this guy has a sincerely good faith religious belief that he does and that he's entitled to have that religious belief. Um, in terms of how we get through it, I mean, the one thing I look to, we're dealing with a, a law that presents similar issues in Mississippi called HB 1523. And in researching, getting ready for that case, I did a lot of research of the history of Jim Crow in Mississippi and religious issues with respect to Jim Crow in Mississippi. And interestingly, during the civil rights movement, it really first began uh, in Mississippi and was a huge matter of controversy. There were a lot of religions, in fact, most mainstream religions in Mississippi 
supported segregation, believe it or not, as a matter of religious belief. Uh, This is not so long ago. They said that religiously that uh, African-Americans and white people should be separate, and that was their religious belief to to think that way. And again, it sounds nutsy today, but I I have to believe that for some of them that was, in fact, their religious belief. Um, Soon enough, when that – after that first started, times changed and – perceptions of what is religion and what is religious belief changed. And within a matter of only a few years, all the mainstream religious religions in Mississippi, religious groups in Mississippi, changed their views and said, no, 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 no. The Bible teaches us that every man uh, is created in God's image and that that is not a religious belief. And we now support uh, efforts to tear down segregation. Um, I, I think it's going to take some time for this to happen with respect to gay people. This is a new thing, just like it was in Mississippi. I don't think that we will ever get to the point with respect to gay people. We may not ever get to the point that we have with African-Americans where it's universally accepted among religions that gay people have equal dignity to everyone else in, in God's eyes. But I do think that over time, people will accept the fact that at least with respect to public discourse and public exchange and the public market, um, it is the right thing to do. It is morally the right thing to do to treat people, gay people, the same as everyone else. And I, and I think this case, you're seeing kind of the early version of that kind of being worked out in this country as a result of Obergefell. And I think it's going to take some time. And that's why I think if the court rules in favor of the banker, the baker, they will try to find a very narrow way to do that. My very last question, uh, a couple of people flagged Neil Gorsuch uh, at oral argument who who actually went, again, beyond what, you know, even talk about putting a sign in the window. Uh, my colleague uh, Mark Joseph Stern uh, wrote pretty eloquently this week about uh, Gorsuch taking the posture that even having to educate your own uh, staff or your own uh, workers about the civil rights responsibilities that they have may be a form of compelled expression. Let's listen for one second to Gorsuch kind of adding a layer to this cake uh, that, again, was surprising to say the least. As I understand it, uh, Colorado ordered Mr. Phillips to provide comprehensive training to his staff. Um, And uh, it didn't order him to attend a class of the government's own creation or anything like that, but to provide comprehensive staff training. Why, Why isn't that compelled speech and possibly in violation of his free exercise rights because presumably he has to tell his staff, including his family members, that his Christian beliefs are discriminatory. Robbie, what's your what's your reaction to, to, to taking kind of moving the goal one place further and suggesting this isn't just compelled speech because the cake artist doesn't want to make, you know, a, a monument to something he hates, but that the mere act of having to teach his own staff uh, about civil accommodations laws is itself a violation of his religious freedom? Uh, th- that's a little hard to swallow. I, I You know, I think particularly given the world we live in today and given another uh, burning controversial issue, which is sexual harassment in the workplace, which we're seeing news about practically every five to ten minutes on Twitter. Um, under the the uh, Title VII and the other civil rights laws that apply, um, companies not only um, have the um, ability to train their uh, their employees about sexual harassment in the workplace, but I would argue have a duty to do so. <laughs> and so, if we were all all of a sudden to say that uh, that's forced speech in a way that could offend the Constitution, we would be upending not only 
laws with that protect people from public accommodation, we'd arguably be tearing down all of Title VII and the sexual harassment laws that we're all talking about so much today. Ravi Kaplan is the founding partner of Kaplan & Co. LLP in New York City, and she was the successful arguer uh, of Edie Windsor's case uh, against the Defense of Marriage Act in 2013. She filed an amicus brief in this case uh, on the question of religious liberty. And, Ravi, I can't think of a lot of people I would have preferred to have on this week than you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Talia. And that is going to do it for today's episode of Amicus. Our email is amicus at slate.com. As I already mentioned, we really, really take your letters seriously, and we love getting them. You can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Thank you so much for the feedback. Transcripts for this show are always available to Slate Plus members. Today's show was produced by our brand new producer, Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with you in two short weeks for another episode of Amicus. Amicus.